Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. And I am forever grateful for the woman who was the first person who called that out on me. Um, I was, again, it was in my early, early to mid twenties. We were standing in a parking lot. Um, At that point, I was in a direct sales business professionally. So it was in one of our like weekly rally meetings. Right. And um, we were talking about, Again, I don't remember how much of it was business and a goal that I was setting or something that I needed to do. And she said, you should go home and you should talk to your husband about all of this. And I said, okay, like, but I'm going to have to sit down. I'm going to have to think about how to say it to him because I don't want him to react this way or this is what I'm afraid he's going to say. And she goes, time out. Stop everything. Forget everything that we just said about your business and your goal and what you need to do to achieve your goal. Because if you and I are having this conversation where you can't talk to your husband openly and freely about this and you're worried about how he's going to react, we've got bigger things to worry about. So let's talk about that. That's amazing. And that is to be so into not and not be in this world, right? So like if I had that conversation with somebody, yeah, I'd 100% have that same reaction. But to be somebody that's not in this world and to be able to pinpoint that, that's amazing. That's awesome. That That is, she's special. <laughs> um, I have a list of individuals who are angels in my world who have in some way, shape or form absolutely shown up at just the right time, at just the right place, with just the right words. And that woman is on my list of angels. That's awesome. That is amazing. So this conversation happens. Is this like kind of that key moment of where you're like, whoa, this relationship is not normal or were there times before that? That was a crack in the, that was the first crack in the veneer Okay, for me. It it still took me a number of years before I really, really started to question what was happening. Uh, And I would say that really it wasn't until like the last year of our marriage where I really started to step out and say, okay, this is something is really, really wrong here. Uh, And it all started, uh, we so my ex-husband we had had two dogs we have the dog that we got from earlier that i had talked about our golden retriever and then we also had a german shepherd who we had adopted from his mother uh who could no longer take care of the dog and we were told uh, around thanksgiving um so around this time about six five or six years ago uh that the dog had lymphoma One night we were scratching his throat. He had these giant golf balls in his throat. So we took him to the vet. They diagnosed him with lymphoma. And so the vet went through a bunch of things. And this German Shepherd, one, was the sweetest, most amazing dog I've ever had in my entire life. Super well-trained, super well-behaved. Very, very, he was my protector in a lot of ways. So it was just devastating to get this news. And we, and he was only five years old. It's not like this was an older dog. He was still very much a puppy. So we were given our options. We took him to a veterinary oncologist and they had basically warned us lymphoma in dogs is very, very aggressive. We're, you know, here, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have 
all of this chemotherapy and here's going to be the bill and here are all of the ways that your life is going to have to change because you're going to have to, you know, administer some of this chemotherapy via pills. So like you're going to be dealing with these very, very strong drugs. These drugs are going to pass through your dog's system, which means that when they go to the bathroom, these, these poisonous toxins are still going to be in their waste, which means now you've got to take care of how you're maintaining your yard. And oh, by the way, you have another dog. And so there are certain things with them that are going to have to happen in terms of making sure this other dog doesn't ex get exposed to all of these things. And then there's no telling that he's going to get better. And this dog is going to be tired and he's going to, I mean, you know, you think about all these things when humans go through chemotherapy and it's same thing with the dog, but the dog can't communicate back to you when they right. need something. And so this, this process was going to be, if I recall correctly, somewhere between 24 and 36 weeks. So we're talking about the better part of a year. Yeah. Uh, and it, <laughs> she said months. I was like, oh, three years. Wow. <laughs> uh, and the cost was going to be somewhere between twenty and $35,000 for all of the drugs, for all of the vet visits. And we had to be in, in the vet's office. And then there's the time component because there's injections and you can't leave the office because if something happens to the dog on site, you've got to be there to make a call, right? So we're talking about two to three hours a week blood draws, injections, all of this, right? There's a lot that's going into this. So I very much love this dog. Like I said, he was my protector. He was only five years old. And at the same time, he's a dog. And I, 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 I hope I don't sound totally heartless when I say that. <laughs> but He's an animal and, and part of me, part of me was considering his quality of life. I mean, he's yeah. a German shepherd. He wants to be out. He wants to be running. He wants to do his thing. He's going to be very sick and there's no telling what's going to happen on the back end of this. Right. And you know, it's not like you have health insurance, right? You're paying all of this out of pocket and you're, and so these were all considerations that we started having conversations about. And this was where I, again, this was the big crack was he used this particular opportunity to convince me that if I didn't do this for the dog, then he was afraid I wouldn't do this for him if he got cancer. Hmm. So I was being questioned on whether or not I was a caring enough wife. I was questioned on whether or not my priorities were right. I was questioned on whether or not I was willing to fight for another living being. Uh, and, and eventually, because, you know, you're, you're, you're this, this is now, like I said, four years into our marriage. And so I, I, I'm in a lower spot to begin with. And, and so it wasn't very hard for him to convince me that we needed to do this because otherwise I wasn't proving I was being a bad person. So the world was going to end. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, I remember talking to, so, so the way that you put it out into the world is I'm doing this for my dog and we care and people will look at you and say, okay, like it's your money. So I guess it's your, priority, but like, isn't that a little weird? Cause they, they didn't know what happened on the conversations we were having on the back end. I'm being a supportive wife and I'm supporting, we're making this decision together as a married couple, husband and wife. Uh, but I remember that kind of on the inside being the first, something about this just doesn't feel right. Wow. That is, and, it, and to use like pets are so like they're, they're family, 
right? Yeah. So it's not like it's just, it, it's it's a dog, right? It It's your dog. And so then to use that, because I mean, you already are having this internal battle of like, do I save my dog or do I not? Like, how do I, and then to have somebody come in and say, well, if you don't, then you kind of, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. And, and it did, it, it, it challenged it even more because we didn't have children. And <laughs> thank goodness on this side of things that we didn't have children. Uh, but it, but it was, I mean, we, there, there are fur babies, right? They were our fur children. And so yeah. again, that was another term that was used against me is these are our fur children. Don't you love your furry children, your family enough? And if you don't love your family enough, what does that mean about you as a future potential mother, as a wife, as a daughter, a daughter-in-law? You know, if you're not willing to do this for one member of your family, then certainly you're not going to be willing to do this for another, which is a huge jump in logic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. When you're in that space where you're already questioning yourself, when you're already questioning your self-esteem, when you're already questioning who you are as a person, it's very easy that that chasm of a jump that it is now. I mean, now I look at that and I say, that's a Grand Canyon of a jump in logic to me. Back yeah. then, it was a crack in the sidewalk. Wow. So this was the first, like, oh, well, I guess second time that you've kind of questioned everything that's going on. What was that final moment where you're like, okay, this is, I'm done. I need to, I need to get out of this relationship. The final moment was 4th of July weekend. And uh, it started really, really strangely with me blow drying my hair. (laughs) Uh, One morning I was blow drying my hair and my shoulder uh, did this thing called subluxing. So if you're not in the medical community, that means that it doesn't actually dislocate, but the joint does move out of its place and then go back in. And so hurt like a son of a gun. (laughs) And so I called my doctor and said, hey, I did this thing. Do I need to go in? Like, it's definitely not dislocated or I would have called 911 or already be on my way to a hospital. Right. Uh, but it hurts like a son of a gun. I don't know if I need just an MRI. And, and the other thing that's complicated, especially with that particular joint and subluxing is when it goes back in place, you want to make sure it goes back in the right way. Otherwise, it continues to move and create bigger problems down the road. The doctor said, yeah, maybe we'll want an MRI. I'll need to get you in for an appointment because then I have to write you a script and go through all the rigmarole. And because it's the holiday, he said, I can't see you until next Wednesday. So got me in the schedule for Wednesday. And he said, you know, if it hurts, ice, rest, try not to move it too much. Uh, You know, you don't have to wear a sling, but if it helps you keep it from not moving or keeps it from hurting, then go ahead and do it. So Cool. Later uh, that weekend, we were going out to dinner with uh, his mother and we were in a truck. We were in the backseat of like an extended cab truck. And I remember I had asked him if I could sit on the passenger side because, you know, when you're in those extended cabs, you have to sit sideways because the back is so small. And that meant that all of your weight was going to be on one shoulder. So I wanted to be on the side where the weight wasn't going to be on the shoulder that I had hurt. And he, for one reason or another, didn't want that. So I ended up sitting on the driver's side. So my weight was on that other shoulder. So I found a way to be somewhat comfortable. We were stopped at a red light on the way to the restaurant. And there was a gentleman who um, did not 
see that the light was red and slammed into this back of the truck at 45 miles an hour. Now, so, so we went forward and we crashed back and I crashed back on the shoulder that I had subluxed. Now, my ex-husband is in the medical field, a medical professional. So he jumped out of the car. He, he asked, are you okay? Jumped out of the car, wanted to check on the driver of the other vehicle while his mother's calling 911. Unfortunately, part of the story is the gentleman, the reason that he crashed into the back of the truck is he was going into a diabetic shock. So lots going on. He's, you know, taking care of this gentleman. Two ambulances, ambulances show up, one for him, one for me, just in case. So we're sitting in the back of the truck or the ambulance. They first thing they do is they slap a blood pressure cuff on you, right? So the EMTs see my blood pressure pop up. They look at each other really, really interestingly, like, okay, do we say something? And I'm like, what? And they said, well, ma'am, your blood pressure is 180 over 120. We think you should go to the hospital right now. And I looked at my husband, because he was my husband at this time, and he's a medical professional. So he knows a thing or two about blood pressure. And I said, listen, you know, we just went through this really, really stressful moment. We, you know, are, are, I'm in a lot of pain. So like, is it possible that this isn't as big of a deal? Like this just happens to be a momentary thing, right? Like, what's your opinion? Now, mind you, at this point in time, what I am believing is I stood years ago in front of our family and friends and God, and I said, to heaven, to hold in sickness and health till death do us part, right? So I am believing this man has got my best interest in mind. So when his response is, yeah, I think you just have high blood pressure because this is stress. Let's just get to the restaurant. Let's have a beer. Let's have some you know, whatever, and just take a deep breath. And I'm sure you're going to be fine. I trust him. So the EMTs have me sign the, yes, I was advised strongly to go to the hospital. (laughs) Right. The, we really, I'm releasing them of liability if something happens to me, which should have been a red flag. Yep. Should have been a red flag. And the other red flag is the other EMT looked at me and said, so here's the deal, ma'am. Uh, if you get a headache, if you start getting blurry vision, if anything happens that feels remotely out of the ordinary, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You get to a hospital as quickly as you can, whatever hospital you have to get to. And it was one of those, well, that's strange, but thanks, sir. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I'm just imagining like when somebody comes back from the future and they're like, don't do this. But if this happens and you're like, am I hallucinating? Yeah. So we go to the restaurant and this is again over the weekend. So fast forward a couple of more days and I am now at my Wednesday doctor appointment that I had made because of my shoulder. And what's the first thing they do when you go in for your doctor's appointment? Blood pressure. And the tech who is taking my blood pressure looked at me and she goes, oh, this isn't right. Your blood pressure is normally like 110 over 90. This cuff must be broken. And she started walking out of the room. She goes, it's, she's muttering. Herself, it's broken. It's broken. I'm going to go get a new one. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, what does it say that my blood pressure is? 
She goes, it said your blood pressure is 180 over 120. I go, oh, that's funny. That's what my blood pressure was in Saturday when I was in the back of the ambulance at this car crash. She stops dead in her tracks, looks over her shoulder, and she goes, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was my blood pressure when I was after the car accident. She goes, so your blood pressure has been at 180 over 124 four days now? yeah, give or take, whatever. She goes, I need to go consult with the doctor on this. And it was one of those, like, you could tell by every look in her face that she's about ready to, like, fly out of that room and panic, but she doesn't want to send you into a panic. Mm-hmm. Had so a few closes, of those moments. <laughs> the door closes behind her uh, and and not not even a few minutes later, the doctor rushes in with both of his nurses and a tech, four people. They're throwing me down on the table. I, they're sticking electrodes on me. They're throwing a blood pressure cuff on me. He's got an eye, a light shining in his eye. He's asking me all of these questions. And I have no idea what on earth is causing all of this drama. And he says, I don't think you understand, Angie. If there is a higher power... It needs you here for something because you should be dead right now. That blood pressure should have given you a stroke two days ago at the very least. You should be blind because the capillaries in your eyes cannot handle this kind of pressure for more than a few hours, if that. So I'm going to need you to answer my questions to make sure that what should have happened two days ago doesn't come to fruition now. So we went through all of the questions. They took a bunch of blood samples. They took a bunch of tests and they said, we're going to get these. We're going to rush these in the lab. Uh, They gave me some medication to bring my blood pressure down. And they gave me a blood pressure cough and said, we need you to check your blood pressure two to three times a day because we need to figure out what's triggering this. If it's something in your diet, if it's something in your lifestyle, if it's this, that, whatever the case may be. And we don't want you staying overnight by yourself because if something happens in the middle of the night, you're not going to have anyone who's, you're not going to be able to take care of yourself. You're going to need someone who's going to be able to call 911 or, or do something for you. So I remember driving home from that appointment and thinking he should have known this. Like, he's a medical professional. He knew this. And he didn't recommend that I go to the hospital and at least wait to see if my blood pressure went down from the stress. That's strange. So I went home and I told him what happened and I told him what the doctor had said. And and part of him working in the medical professional, he worked at that time in a hospital. So he had some third shift obligations overnight. And so I I had a feeling already because of his third shift that I was going to have to find some nights where I was going to have to stay with a friend or something. I was already figuring that was going to be part of the plan. And he had at that point also planned a trip out of town with some friends. And so I was asking him, you know, like, we're talking about me almost having a stroke. (laughs) Maybe you don't go out of the state with your friends. Not that unreasonable of a request for a wife to ask of her husband. And his response was, 
plane tickets have already been paid for. And that's, that was the, holy smokes, this is where this is. I remember that night looking in my bathroom mirror, the same mirror that I had looked at five days ago when I was blow drying my hair when this all started and thinking, I can't say for sure that he's trying to kill me. I think that that's a huge leap in logic, but he is certainly willing to let me die. Wow. So what happens next? So what happens next was, uh, part starting to plan for departure and not really knowing what that's going to look like or how long it's going to take. And, um, what was really, really ironic, kind of the thing that sealed the deal is he did go out of state with his buddies on this trip. And the entire time that he was out of state, my blood pressure never went above 120 over 80. It was one of those. It's a telling sign. When the doctor says, maybe there's something in your lifestyle that's stressing you out so much that it's going to kill you. And that thing leaves for a few days. It's what we call a sign. We call evidence. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, uh, that's incredible that it, like... It, I, I know it makes sense, but it's still just incredible that it was that drastic of a change immediately, not even like a couple months down the road. You're like, oh, wow, I feel a lot better. Like the day he left, yeah. it was normal. And it because you raising once he got home. And, which is, it's just, it's crazy because you would think that you would still be feeling that like you, that person's still in your life, that person's still communicating with you and still there. So it's not like you got rid of, it's not like you left the relationship. That person is still there, but the, just the fact that they're not physically present to bring that down so drastically is insane. It's amazing what the body will tell you if you listen. Yeah. To it. <laughs> oh yeah. A hundred percent. So what, were you ever scared to leave? Did you have like this plan of like okay if or just not even a plan just this thought of like if i leave he's gonna go off the deep end or was it just kind of like i need this plan so that i feel better about leaving both i really didn't know what kind of reaction i was going to get i figured i was going to get one of two extreme reactions either i was going to get the reaction of uh he's going to go out of his way to make it impossible for me to leave so i need to be prepared for that i also wasn't sure if i was going to get the other end of the spectrum which was if i'm done and out then he's like he's just on to the next on to the next thing yeah and i guess Fortunately, for what it's worth, he was in the position where he was just done on, on to the next thing once I did end up filing for divorce. Blessing in disguise. <laughs> right. It hurts in that moment, right? That you're like, oh, well, well, we're done. Okay. All right. You know, like just kind of that, like how we've been together for how many years and you're just like, all right, cool. And then, but yeah, looking back makes it a lot easier to deal with everything. Yeah. Yeah, I was very fortunate, um, again, because we didn't have children, it made the separation process a lot easier. Uh, but basically, between filing 
the uh, county mandated cooling off period and then actually getting to court and having everything decided as far as like assets and all that other fun stuff that goes through that, excuse me, that process. It was like 90 to 100 days. Wow. Wow. Isn't that so crazy that the government makes you work like, oh, no, I, you know, you should work on your marriage. And you're like, no, really, this doesn't work. We've tried. And they're like, nope, nope, just try. And you're like, but really, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and it, and for, uh, for the area that I'm in, it wasn't so much a we're going to make it try. It's a, okay, you've made this decision. We assume that you guys are going to be really, really pissed off and irrational, and we aren't getting in the middle of that. So we're giving you a cooling off period so that we don't have to deal with you guys being idiots. <laughs> That And that's also fair on their part because, you know, I would say six times out of 10, that's probably very accurate as to how these things end. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you, you wish it was a Hallmark movie where it's like, oh, we're best friends and we raise our kids together and harmoniously. And you're like, that's not real life, but, you know. It can be. I do know uh, a couple of individuals who have had that kind of story, which I am very grateful for. But I mean, that's a handful out of how many people that I know that are divorced with children. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. The minority. Yes, definitely. So you are divorced and I am assuming that your self-esteem did not magically grow overnight as soon as you got divorced. So what was that journey like? When did you kind of say like, okay, I closed this chapter of my life and now how do I start focusing on this chapter? So the good news um, and kind of what my journey looked like is I was very fortunate that because I was still in this space of looking for validation, looking for ways to prove myself, which was residual from high school and college, I had built up a pretty significant professional space and it was very um, successful. I, and I don't mean that financially necessarily. I, I really, I, just because this is a little bit of a, a peeve of mine, um, you know, success doesn't come just financially. <laughs> I, did, I didn't walk away with like a hundred thousand dollar career. No, I came away with a lot of accolades and again, those badges that I was collecting. And so at least I had that part of me that I could lean into and use as a support system while I was rebuilding this like personal side of myself. So what that that personal side looked like was really, really creating a space for myself and dropping a lot of my my extras. Like I basically for about a year would wake up, go to work, come home and then just be by myself and be quiet. I didn't have cable in my apartment. I didn't have internet in my my apartment simply because I wanted to create absolute space. I didn't want anything filling my head. I, I told myself early on, I was either going to come out of this bitter or better. And gosh darn it, I was going to come out better. <laughs> and I knew that because I'd already been doing some of the therapy stuff just based on, on, on my childhood. I knew that it wasn't going to be easy, but that I could accelerate the process to some extent by just attacking it really quickly, really head on and like dealing with the fact that it was going to suck a lot and it was going to be hard. And there were going to be nights that I was going to cry myself to sleep. And there were going to be days where I would feel like a total shell of myself, but that was going to, it would be short term, 
if I dealt with it. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.